Thanks, Lockie. Well, friends, please uh, keep a Bible open in front of you, either old school paper um, or a device, whichever works. Uh, as we make our way through Ephesians, well, things are starting to get uh, very practical and very real um, uh, this week and in the weeks to come. I appreciate that for some of us, these things might kind of hit on some, some hot button topics, some points of, of grief or difficulty with plenty of questions that might arise out of them. As you can imagine, there's only so much we can say in 25 minutes or so. So I really want to keep the channels of communication open. And if, uh, if I raise things or if you're reading things in the Word here that, that you find you want to wrestle with, then please don't be shy to come and speak to me or to Matt. And, and as we've been encouraged in Ephesians to, to keep you know, speaking to each other, engaging with God's Word together. As we look at this passage today... I reckon there are many of us who have felt, to one extent or another, the the sting and and perhaps even the stigma of being a little bit different as Christians. And for many of us, it leaves us more than just a little bit shy about standing out as a Christian. Picture a couple of scenarios. Maybe it's the group of friends organising the picnic in the hills. uh, They settle on Sunday morning yet again. And and you've got to work out whether whether you point out yet again that Sunday morning is church for you. Or that awkward moment when you're out with the blokes at the pub and they get up to move on to the next venue and you, and you have to work out how you're going to say that you're not actually going to join them at the strip club. Or the workplace diversity committee, they've nominated an upcoming date to wear it purple and suddenly getting dressed in the morning becomes a, an ethical decision. Not to mention that we've all seen the, the high-profile stories of doctors deregistered and cake shops closed down because of stances that they took on matters of conscience. I mean, really, who wants to stand out these days? It all begs the question, is it really all that wise to stand out? Or is it just a little bit foolish to expect to be so different from the people around us as we were encouraged to think about last week? Well, that's the question that our passage today helps us to wrestle with and the conclusion for us is found in verse 15 towards the end. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. You see, in His wisdom and His kindness, God teaches us what is truly wise so we don't end up being fools when it really matters. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And as we kicked off our passage in verses 1 and 2, we've got a wonderful summary of the only wise way to live. Reading from verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the only wise way to live, following God's example, walking in the way of love. But the problem with that is that every culture in human history has had a pretty confused idea of what love is. That's just the nature of the human heart apart from God, which is why from the beginning God has been teaching humanity again and again in so many different ways what love is and ultimately in Christ. So walk in the way of love, Paul says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. They're short, pithy verses, but the the point is both very profound and yet very simple. That our love and our lives are to be shaped by the cross and not by the culture that we live in, even if your culture thinks that you're a fool for it. 
So as we're about to unpack, wise living will always stand out from the culture around us and often in very practical ways, which is what Paul helps us to dig into right away from verse 3. I want you to see, and if you're using the outline on the online, we've got three big no's. Wise people have big noses. No, no, it just there are three important things that he says don't do. Do you see how that came up a couple of times actually in verses 3 through 7, that next paragraph? No sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed. Reading from verse 3, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. He returns to that in verse 5, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And I hope immediately we're all kind of going, Josh, that strikes a nerve, doesn't it? Strikes a nerve for our neighbours, probably even for many of us, the thought that that our God might exclude people from relationship with Him on the basis of their conduct and, and even their sexuality, perhaps, to be so personal. First, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Friends, I think as we come to something like this, it's really helpful to, to kind of clarify terms because we're never going to get our heads straight around this unless we allow the Bible to define its own terms so that we can understand what God's saying to us through it. See, God is consistent in His teaching that the only right place for sexual intimacy is between marriage, is, sorry, is within marriage between a man and a woman. It's the, it's the most intimate act of self-giving and it's meant for the permanent covenant of marriage to reflect God's great faithfulness in His self-giving love for us. But we're creatures that love to play with boundaries, right? You know, we love to work out, can I bend the rule this way or how far can I go? So we, we want to work out what is meant by marriage, what is the level of intimacy that is allowed. You just ask any average teenager trying to work out what they can get away with on a date. And we don't have time to unpack all of that. So permit me to lean on uh, the experience and the wisdom of Christian sexologist and sex therapist, Dr. Patricia Wirakun, because she sums it up in a really pithy statement. In responding to that very typical teen question that plenty of adults uh, wrestle with too as Christians, kind of asking how far is too far to go? What is sexual immorality? This is how Wirakun summarises it for us. From God's point of view... The question should be, what is the intention of the activity and what's the outcome? And then at the bottom of the same page, she concludes with a really biblical and very helpfully concise conclusion. With these things in mind, any act out of the marriage context that is meant to sexually arouse another or is personally sexually arousing is to be avoided. That is sexual immorality. It's a bold statement. Here I am, Sunday morning, we're talking about sex, but so is the rest of the world. In a sexualized world where even our primary school kids are exploring physical intimacy, where our screens are almost saturated with sexualized content, where even our retirement villages, I noticed on a billboard as I drove past one the other day, our retirement villages are flagging their sexual credentials. This is a bold statement. Any act out of the marriage context that is meant to sexually arouse another person or is sexually arousing is to be avoided. That is the Bible's definition of sexual immorality. Now, if you're a parent 
And like me, you're freaking out about what my kids are going to be growing up in and how, how on earth do I help guide them through this? I, I cannot uh, recommend this book highly enough. The details of it are on the Sunday Hub in the sermon outline. Teen Sex by the Book, equally helpful for adults to be reading through. But if you are an adult uh, and you want to wrestle through with this um, um, in a more mature way, from a, you know, with, with a more mature audience in mind, this is an excellent book by, by British psychiatrist Glyn Harrison. A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. As I said, both uh, books, uh, details are in the sermon outline because we simply can't cover all of this this morning. But what both books help us to see is that underneath it all, in a very deep way, in a very personal way that is not meant in any way as a sort of just dismissiveness, the world's approach to sex is essentially based on a fear of missing out missing out on intimacy, on pleasure, on the opportunity to explore and express who we really are. And yet God's teaching about sex is not trying to deprive us of something good, rather it's helping us to see how good it really is when we let Him show us how it's meant to work. I was trying to think of kind of analogies for us and the best I can come up with is that I think it's a little bit like knowing that a fire on a cold night gives comforting warmth but only when it's in the fireplace, not burning the house down. And the main point to make here though in, in Ephesians 5 is that our sexual ethic, the way that we think about sex and sexuality and what we do and how we speak and what we say and watch in this whole sphere it will be profoundly different from those who go through life without God in the picture. So to use Paul's heading in Ephesians 4, if you want to live a life worthy of your calling, you will look so very different with respect to your sexual ethic. And yet that doesn't make you a fool for being different. In fact, for all our world's longing for love and and confusion about where it's found... Ephesians 5 says that walking in the way of love means that there is nothing casual about sex. It really matters and the wise person will listen to God. But sexual immorality was actually only the first of those three categories that Paul warned the Ephesians about. So let's look briefly at the other two as well. Paul continues, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. So what's impurity? Well, impurity is just a term that looks far more broadly than at sex to a more generalised idea of kind of an unrestrained behaviour. It's not that hard to picture if I give you a couple of kind of prompts. It's the kind of behaviour that happens when when inhibitions are down and people are just kind of let loose. The kind of behaviour that bucks nights and, you know, workplace Christmas parties, they're notorious for it. But you might just as easily see it after a win at the footy or when you've had a few too many drinks over dinner. And yet it's not trivial. Paul says, don't have even a hint of it in your life. But then the third category, greed. Coveting what you don't have, wanting more. Or as the term goes in Australian politics, the aspirational middle class. Talk about window dressing, the sinfulness of the human heart. I mean, greed, greed is what what our advertising trades on and what so much of our politics plays to. So it can all seem so innocent. But do you see how high the stakes are here? 
Paul doesn't mince his words. In verse 5 he says, those who persist in such behaviour will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In verse 6, it's not in any way trivial because this is the kind of behaviour that deserves God's wrath, the very punishment that Christ died for. These are firm words, not even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or of greed. And the thing that makes it all possible is something mentioned here at the end of verse 4. It's repeated in verse 20. And if we have eyes to see it, it peppers the Bible from start to finish. It's thankfulness. How do you you live in a world that this is the the air that we breathe and we're called to be so very different, to make tough choices, to be different? It's thankfulness. Thanksgiving is what should characterise us in contrast to all of this. It's a contrast between thankful hearts and hearts that are constantly grasping for more. So thankfulness means that instead of dwelling on what we think we're missing out on, we dwell on all that we have in Christ. And while I appreciate that could sound like a dismissive comment, if this is not just looking at those people out there, but really wrestling with something deep in your own heart, This is actually the deep reality of what it means to pray the wonderful prayers that we have in the book of Ephesians. The prayers of chapter 1, to know God better, to know the hope that we have in Christ and chapter 3, to know the love that we have in Christ. I think that's why Paul spent all of chapter 1 through 3 helping us to get our heads around that before he turned to the really tangible, practical stuff that flows out of it. And now for some of us, Hearing something put as bluntly as this might actually, might actually leave us in a pickle because we actually know what it is to stumble too. Where do we go then? Well, that's, I think, the paragraph that we have from verse 8 to 14. It, it uses a contrast between light and darkness to teach us that wise people are actually repentant people. That's the second big idea we have here. I'm going to read from verse 13 that sums this up for us. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Now, Christians are renowned. As soon as we start talking about ethics and and, and right and wrong and do's and don'ts, we are renowned for, for judging those outside the church. But I don't think that's what's going on here. So I'm talking about exposing other people and what they're doing in the dark, looking down our noses at them. This is about us bringing our own sin to light, which the Bible calls confession. Acknowledging our sin is the first step towards turning away from it and and turning towards Jesus instead, which the Bible calls repentance. Now, if we are in the light, which is Paul's metaphor for being in relationship with Jesus, then we don't want our deeds to remain in the dark and hidden. On the one hand, it's simply futile because God knows about them all anyway. We're kidding ourselves if we think that we've gotten away with it. But alongside that, leaving sin unconfessed, it's actually also a burden that we don't need to carry. In our shame, what do we do? We tend to think that bringing things into the open will only make things worse. It'll do far more damage than keeping it under wraps. We worry about our reputation, our popularity, our ongoing relationships. Gosh, if they knew that about me, then, then what would happen? If I keep this quiet, surely it'll all just blow over. But of course, the opposite is true. 
Unconfessed sin doesn't just fade away into the past, it lingers and it niggles and and the only way you can really put it out of your mind is if you harden your heart and yet Paul's already shown us the disastrous consequence of doing that in chapter 4. Do you remember those words of Jesus? He described himself as the light of the world and he said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And friends, Jesus didn't mean that as a threat. He meant it as a promise, a gracious promise. Living in darkness is terrible. As anyone who's done the winter above the Arctic Circle can tell you, that's why it's an uninhabited wasteland, because living in the darkness is terrible. Bringing sin into the light of the gospel will only and always do good in the end. Yes, there will often be some degree of short-term pain, the loss of face, the hurt to relationships, the humbling experience of of having to face with the consequences of our own actions. But did you see how positively verse 13 described it? That confessed sin actually becomes a light when it's brought into the light. You see, if if we're honest about ourselves, if we're confessing our sins, being real before God and with others, that doesn't just clear the record and kind of bring us back to a neutral state. More than that, in God's grace... When we confess our sin and He shows us His grace and mercy and forgiveness, then that in itself becomes a light, a beacon, shining forth the beauty of God's grace and His love for us, that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And as I think this through for us as a church, it's it's really helpful for us to remember that though we might feel like these words, they're just drilling into my heart, this is written to me, this is actually Paul writing to a church. It's not just for individuals. This is a community activity, bringing our sin into the light together. So I'd like to propose a radical change to Big Days at Brighton. We're actually going to begin with section one, which is a a, a sort of a group spew fest where we go through our week's sins. That's a joke. We're not doing that. But it is an encouragement for us to reflect on what it means to share the things that we are repentant of with people that you trust. Whether it's in our growth groups or with a friend or a trusted old brother or sister, someone who will point you to God's grace to us in Jesus. Because you see, the, the devil would have us believe either one of two great lies about sin. He doesn't really care, he just wants us to take one or the other. Either it doesn't really matter, so just go on, enjoy it. Or it matters so much that you can't possibly expect God to forgive you. And for the first lie, we need to take verses 1 to 7 really seriously. And for the second lie, we need to hear the grace of verse 8 through 14 and allow one another to speak the light of the gospel into our sin and into our shame, pointing each other to the cross-shaped love of Jesus. And then finally, our passage finishes with that really explicit instruction that we began with in verse 15. And it helps us to see that if we really want to be wise, then we know that the Christian life is actually about waiting wisely. To sum up, God has painted, this is where we've got to so far, a picture of a really radical discipleship for us. It's a discipleship that's going to take sin seriously. It's, it's going to both avoid it and acknowledge it. And it's all because we want to walk in the, in the cross-shaped love of Jesus. 
And yet Paul knows the world that we live in. 21st century Adelaide isn't that much different to 1st century Ephesus. And he knows that we need to be reminded to be careful as we walk through life. Because it is so, so easy to be foolish. Read verse 15 and 16 with me. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That's the number of it. Make the most of every opportunity. That isn't just some self-help guide to career success. It's not a decision-making model that says you have to walk through every door that God opens for you. You might have heard other Bible translations that say something like, redeem the time or buy the time instead of that phrase, make the most of every opportunity. They sound quite different because we're all grappling with how to take a, a, an image, a turn of phrase in the original language and kind of capture it in the English. But it's basically saying that because we live in the evil days between Jesus' first and his second coming, we should take ownership of the days of our lives for the sake of gospel living. It's about knowing the season that we live in and waiting for Jesus to return wisely. I wonder if you've noticed, as we've worked through Ephesians, how Paul's already referred to time, this this time frame of waiting, the the future hope that we have, a number of different points. Let me pick up on three of them in chapter 4 and 5, really briefly. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down and and read back over them, because we're we're wrapping up, as we just see, what it means to wait wisely. First, he mentioned it in chapter 4, verse 30, that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our coming redemption. The implication there is that we're all looking forward to that day when even our physical bodies will be set free from the impact of sin and its consequences. We are people who wait. And while we wait, life will be a struggle with sin. But the Spirit's work in us is our assurance that redemption is coming. So the wise person... The wise person knows that and they recognise that there'll be this ongoing struggle for self-control. So it isn't a surprise that in our struggle we have to work hard to have the new self shape our decisions. Secondly, in chapter 5, verse 5, we read just there the threat that persistent sin poses to the inheritance that is to come in the kingdom of God. See, the wise person knows that While that future inheritance will be glorious, this is a season of present hardship and and, and waiting. Gratification is not instant, even though that's what our advertising wants to sell us. So whether it's the unmet desire for comfort or for fun or for the intimacy of sexual union, the Christian knows that we wait for our ultimate fulfilment in the kingdom yet to come. And thirdly, right here in verse 16, we read that kind of strange phrase that these days are evil. Now, that's not saying that there is nothing good in this world at this time. It simply means that the wise person will remember that until Christ returns, the world around us is thoroughly tainted by sin. Many of us will think us fools for following Jesus, but that does not make us fools. And then a bit out of nowhere... A passage finishes with this kind of slightly odd contrast between getting drunk on the one hand and being filled with the Spirit on the other. But it actually sums it up so well. It brings us home so helpfully. 
Don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, says Paul. Because what what does alcohol do to us? God doesn't have a problem with alcohol, but we have a problem with our our self-control being lowered and inhibitions being done away with. Because then the struggle with self-control, that's a walkover. The old self rules. Instead, be ruled by the Spirit. Because if you remember what I've said a, a few points, what the Spirit feels, He rules. And so the struggle with sin is one of growing maturity, as the Spirit enables us to put on the new self in Christ. That's what a wise person longs for. And the rest of that final paragraph, verse 19 to 21, it hangs off it. Being filled with the Spirit means speaking and singing, giving thanks, and as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, submitting. Being filled with the Spirit happens when we speak and even sing to each other the truth of the Gospel. It means that we reflect deeply in our hearts on the goodness of God. And it means that we want to live a life that is, the whole thing is being directed towards God in, in adoration, in thanksgiving, recognising all that He's given us in Jesus. That's what wise living looks like. Even if at times, in the middle of the conversation, it feels really awkward to stand apart and to be different. Even when faced with the temptation, it takes everything you've got to remember what God has given us in Christ rather than being so caught up in what we fear that we might miss out on. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've had the time to, to work our way through Ephesians chapters you know, 1 through 3 to see your amazing grace and love to us because it's only on that basis that we're going to understand these words correctly. That as you speak to us really frankly about the lives that you call us to live, you do so as our loving Heavenly Father who's already showered us with your mercy and your grace and kindness. And because we are your dearly loved children, God, we want to walk in the way of love that you have shown us in Jesus. So we pray that you'd help us to be wise. Recognize this time that we live in and to long to be people who take every step wisely walking towards that great day when Jesus returns. And we pray this in his name. Amen.